Our reading today comes from the epistle to second epistle to the Thessalonians, chapter one, verses one through twelve. Listen now for the word of the Lord. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly and the love of every one of you for each other is increasing. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, they will suffer the, the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. To this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. Uh, welcome. Before I begin, um, I just want to make another quick announcement regarding um, an announcement that was previously made. Uh, this summer, uh, we are, if possible, we want to participate with a group known as Oasis. Uh, they run a summer camp in New Brunswick all summer, and they're asking local churches if we could uh, volunteer for a week. And so um, if anyone is interested uh, in being a part of that, it's going to be a fourth through eighth graders, you know, games and VBS type stuff uh, during the summer. So if anyone is interested in doing that this summer uh, for even just a day or hopefully for a full week, uh, please let me know or let Pastor Danny know, and we'll see if we can put a team together uh, for this summer. All right, uh, for our visitors, uh, for those of you who are uh, with us for the first time, um, we are working ourselves through a series of sermons, uh, teachings, uh, based on the New City Catechism. And uh, we're in the middle of some very heavy doctrine. Uh, last week, uh, I preached on predestination. Today, I'm going to preach on hell. So uh, maybe not the best week to come visiting us. <laughs> um, but I, it occurred to me, you know, the very first sermon I ever preached um, as a very young man the very first sermon, I preached on the theme of the Trinity. And then the second sermon I preached was on the wrath of God. So that's, that's kind of how I am. Um, so uh, hopefully um, this won't characterize the teaching that goes on here. Um, you know, the, hell is one small, small piece of uh, all that we want to talk about. So uh, I just want you to be aware of that. 
Uh, as we do every week too, uh, we want to review uh, some of the previous questions of the catechism. So let's begin uh, together with uh, question 20. And I'll invite you to recite along. Uh, close your eyes if you have them memorized, uh, as we've been encouraging you to do. Question 20, who is the Redeemer? 21, what sort of Redeemer is needed to bring us back to God? 24, why was it necessary for Christ, the Redeemer, to die? 25, does Christ's death mean all our sins can be forgiven? 26, what else does Christ's death redeem? 27, are all people, just as they were lost through Adam, saved through Christ? No, only those who are elected by God and united to Christ by faith. And today's question is number 28. What happens after death to those not united to Christ by faith? And the full answer is they will be cast out from the presence of God into hell to be justly punished. But what we're going to memorize is they will be cast out from the presence of God forever. And that's our theme for today. Let's pray together. Lord, uh, we are thankful for this day. We are thankful for your word, uh, even hard words. Uh, help us to understand today, um, not, to, not to fear hell or to... Um, experience um, terror or anything like that, but God, help us to understand this and how this is a part of your overall purpose and plan of redemption for all of us. Uh, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So the last couple of weeks, we saw in the letter to the Romans that Paul was encouraging the Roman church to endure their suffering because their salvation is in the hands of God from the beginning to the very end, beginning with God's election and foreknowledge all the way to future glorification. Paul assured them to have confidence because the promises of God are not dependent on us, but on the love of God and Jesus Christ, whose work on the cross, the objective reality of the work on the cross, demonstrates and completes once and for all our salvation. And so I, I want us to keep that in mind in this letter as well. That Paul here also is trying to reassure the church and Thessalonica because they're undergoing a lot of persecution and suffering. And so he's writing this letter to try to encourage them in their suffering. So after the usual greetings, he tells them how their endurance for the faith in the face of suffering is a cause of celebration and encouragement to all the churches. He then elaborates on this point by noting that God's justice will prevail in the end when Jesus will be revealed at the end of time. So for a congregation that's just undergoing just persecution and persecution, he's telling them, just hang in there. You're an example to the rest of the churches. And one day, God's justice will prevail. That's his message. And so... At that moment, he then says, those who did not obey the gospel will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory 
of his might. Now, this is one of the most explicit verses we have about what happens to those who are not united with Christ by faith. The destiny of those who do not know God will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction from the presence of God and what we commonly refer to as hell. Uh, the title of my sermon, which did not make it into the bulletin today uh, with some technical difficulties, is, uh, it was H-E double hockey sticks. Some of you might remember that, maybe not too many of you. Uh, when I was a kid, you weren't allowed to say hell. And so you would say H-E double hockey sticks. Anybody know? Okay. Just me and Kevin. All right. <clears throat> um, we weren't allowed to say it in part because it was, you know, it was a curse word and you weren't allowed to curse, but also because there was a certain amount of fear attached to it. Right? Some adults would say, you know, don't do that or, you know, you're going to get caught and you'll be punished and, you know, you'll go, you'll go you know where, H-E, double hockey sticks. Um, hell served as a kind of warning that our sins would be found out and that our sins would be punished, if not in this life, then in the life to come. It's kind of like how we teach our children from right and wrong, although not that extreme, right? We, we tell them, if you do something wrong, you'll be punished. If you, you know, you're going to get caught, and, and so on. So a, a little fear, for, at least in my life, to keep me on the straight and narrow when I was a young person was not a bad thing. Now, as I've matured, hopefully, my motivation for doing right is the love of Christ, and not the fear of hell. But again, as a young person, a, a little bit of fear wasn't such a bad thing. Now, I don't know the kind of preaching you grew up with in your churches, but for a time, I was involved with a fellowship group where the uh, fear of hell was regularly emphasized as motivation. Uh, maybe motivation is not the right word. As, as a kind of guilt trip uh, to inspire evangelism and world missions. The argument went something like, if you don't share the gospel with your neighbor, they're going to go to hell forever, and it'll be all your fault. They're going to be in eternity in torment because you were too embarrassed to talk about Jesus. How can you not love someone? How can you hate someone that much that you're not willing to do that? I mean, that's the kind of um, message I got. Um, sometimes it was effective. Sometimes it was just, you know, just very painful. Um, now, these days, uh, hell does remain kind of in the popular imagination as a place, you know, of burning fire and brimstone and all of that, a place where God sends wicked and evil people for punishment, but as the title of Francis Chan and Preston Sprinkle's book, Erasing Hell, suggests, fewer and fewer Americans believe in the reality of hell with each passing year. Various polls suggest that the percentage of Christians who believe in hell is at about 60%, uh, though the percentage goes up to about 80% for those who identify as evangelicals. You may have read about an incident a few weeks ago involving Pope Francis and a young boy whose father had recently died. The boy was understandably shaken by his loss, and he asked the Pope whether or not his father was going to heaven because his father was not a believer. Now, that's a tough question. That is not the time to quote 2 Thessalonians 1.9. He will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord. The Pope gave a compassionate 
and pastoral answer, suggesting that his father was a good man and that God would not cast away good men. Many people thought that was a wonderful word of comfort for the boy, but others criticized him for undermining the doctrine of hell as well as suggesting that goodness would merit eternal salvation. Needless to say, the idea of suffering eternal punishment, this eternal destruction that Paul writes about, it's not a popular one. In fact, I looked up in the revised common lectionary, for example, the reading for this passage skips verses 5 through 10. So the reading is verses 1 through 4 and then 11 and 12. Just, we just excise the, that entire passage about eternal destruction. A lot of people are uncomfortable with this topic. C.S. Lewis, in his book, The Problem of Pain, wrote, There is no doctrine which I would more willingly remove from Christianity than this, if it lay in my power. I can certainly emphasize, uh, empathize with that thought, and, and maybe you do too. Maybe it's something, you know, if we could get rid of it, we would want to. But, Lewis goes on to say, but it has the full support of Scripture, and especially of our Lord's own words, it has always been held by Christendom, and it has the support of reason. Hell is a hard doctrine, a hard idea, but as Lewis insists, there are three good reasons why we cannot simply dismiss it or excise it from the scriptures. It has a support of scriptures, especially the words of Jesus. It has been held by Christendom, that is, throughout the history of the church, and it makes sense. It has a supportive reason. And so I want to work with that framework today with you as we think about this. So first, it has a support of scriptures, especially the words of Jesus. And let's begin with this word hell. It's a bit confusing because the word hell in English means something. And it is a word that is used to translate about a half a dozen different words in the Bible. And so I think that leads to a number of uh, confusions. In the Old Testament, the word that is sometimes translated as hell is shul, which means simply the grave or the pit, and it's the place where those who have died go, both the righteous and the unrighteous. And so hell is really not the best translation for that, and is probably best left untranslated, which is what many of the modern translations do. So we just, just leave that word alone. Now, in the New Testament, there are a handful of words. There's words, again, that gets sometimes translated as hell, but in my opinion, I think it should just be left untranslated. The word Hades, for example, which is the place of the dead um, prior to the resurrection, but again, it, it doesn't have necessarily the kind of uh, place just for the wicked as we do. Uh, the abyss or the bottomless pit. Um, and Tartarus, which is a place, if you remember your Greek mythologies, where the titans were sent for uh, punishment. And so those words appear just once or twice uh, in the New Testament. And again, um, they should probably just be left untranslated because it's not hell in the sense that we think of hell when we think of hell. And they're really not a part of the discussion about hell um, that we're going to have today. So the only word that really leaves us with in thinking about hell is this word Gehenna. Gehenna. And this is a transliteration of another word, the Valley of Hinnom, 
which is a ravine on the uh, south side of Jerusalem. And it has this sort of uh, history, this place. It's a place where, for a time, the Israelites burned their children in, in child sacrifice to the god Moloch. And so it was like a, really a bad place. So it became associated with, you know, this, this evil, evil idolatry. Jeremiah called it the Valley of Slaughter because of all the dead that would be just, just decaying there. A thousand years after, uh, after this, after Jesus, actually, um, people looking back to the time of Jesus suggested that it was a place where they would burn the city garbage. It became sort of the, the dump where fires would be lit and the garbage would be just be burning 24-7. And so in, in the imagination, it, this, this valley, Gehenna, was a place of just this burning and, and evil and wickedness. And so that's the association. And so that's the word that Jesus uses that typically gets translated as hell. Now, that word Gehenna only appears 12 times in the New Testament. And 11 of those 12 times, Jesus says it. So, so it's an important idea. Jesus talks about it. He's the one who... He's really, he's the only one who really talks about it. James mentions it once. And so it appears in, in four different passages where he's talking about it. And I want you to know that when he talks about it, he's talking about it in a way that is not the way we think of hell as a, the assignment for those who are unbelievers. He uses it in a little bit different kind of way. So for example, in the Sermon on the Mount, he uses this. He warns against the sin of murder when he says, you know, when we misuse our words to insult our brothers and sisters, that's the same as murder. And he says this, whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire, to the Gehenna of fire. Right? So if you, if you call somebody you fool, Jesus says, you're, you know, you gotta be, you're in danger of the Gehenna, this, this wicked place of fire. Later, warning his disciples about causing others to sin, to stumble. He says that it is better to be maimed, right, to, to, you know, to rip out your eye, to, to cut off your arms, than to be thrown into hell, into Gehenna. So he's not assigning those who are unbelievers to eternal damnation. Rather, he's using it as a place of judgment for the wicked and to warn his disciples pedagogically, I think, against those choices, those paths of indifference and impenitence that will lead to this place. And so I think because of all the kind of uh, popular associations that we have with hell, in my opinion, it's probably also best to leave this word untranslated as Gehenna. Now, having said that, even though this particular word doesn't appear, you know, throughout, the idea, there are many, many, many passages that talks about a kind of eternal punishment that await the wicked that can only be described as hell. For example, in Revelation 14, those who worship the beast will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night. Now, I understand that that's a vision, but, you know, I think it's trying to tell us something there. Also, in the parable about the sheep and the goats, Jesus says to the goats, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. So it's prepared for the devil and his angels, but those who are wicked are assigned to there as well. Now, 
Fire can be a metaphor for pain, for purification, for holiness even. Um, but, the, but the true pain or the, the true punishment is really separation, as you heard here, right? Eternally separated from the glory of God. Depart from me, Jesus says, I never knew you. And so as difficult as it may be for us, I think, the testimony of Scripture and the words of Jesus really insist on the reality of hell. Second, hell has the support of the history of Christendom. Now, to be fair, there are those Christians who hold alternative views to hell, regarding hell. Uh, in the first four centuries, for example, there were some theologians who taught what we would call today as universal salvation or universalism or universal reconciliationism or restorationism. There, it goes by a variety of names. And within this uh, category, there's all kinds of variations on it, which we don't obviously have time to get into. But they argue, or this, this theory argues, uh, as Rob Bell has uh, recently repopularized, that God's love will in the end overcome all sins and all will be saved. Everyone, regardless of faith, regardless of how one has lived their lives. Now, obviously, this has, this has wide appeal in an age of pluralism and tolerism, and it'd be great if it were true, right? I mean, in, in, in one sense, everyone gets saved, and we can all, you know, be together. Uh, God's desire certainly is for all to be saved. Christ died, the scriptures say, uh, in places to redeem the whole world and all of creation, and maybe all of creation includes the wicked, it can be argued. And so maybe the wicked will be punished accordingly to, to some degree uh, until they are brought to a point of repentance or somehow uh, hell becomes you know, temporary or perhaps a kind of imagination. And so some have tried to take that kind of position because the idea of eternal conscious punishment is just repugnant to some people uh, as we think about this idea of hell. Now, in recent years, there has been another idea that has been gaining uh, increasing popularity, and it is sometimes called conditional immortality or conditionalism or annihilationism or extinctionism or terminalism. So it goes by a bunch of different names. But people who hold this view argue that only God is immortal and that only those who are in Christ are given immortality. That those who are not in Christ, their lives, will, they have no eternity. They will face extinction, annihilation. The lost are not immortal, and their fate is destruction. So rather than kind of an eternal punishment, uh, their lives will simply be dis, uh, extinguished. The wages of sin is death, and the death of life or extinction is the ultimate punishment. And so many people find this idea more palatable, this idea of extinction, rather than uh, an eternity of punishment. Uh, Preston Sprinkle, who co-authored Erasing Hell with Francis Chan, uh, predicted a few years ago, quote, that annihilation, the annihilation view of hell will be the dominant view in 10 or 15 years. He says he bases that on how many well-known pastors secretly hold that view and the growing ease with which we dismiss traditional views. 
Now, having said that, um, the idea of hell as eternal punishment has been believed and has been uh, argued for by nearly every Christian for the last 2,000 years. And so while it might be uh, difficult for us to, uh, to believe, uh, and while certainly we want to be open to ongoing conversation and, and reformation in our thinking um, according to the word of God, we also ought to be reluctant to dismiss something that has been held by the church, by nearly everyone, for all of our history. I think, I, I think you know, that it takes a lot of arrogance to just kind of toss it all out. The early church, now, did not preach hell uh, as, as a primary theme. It preached Jesus Christ and him crucified. But it preached that there is no other name under heaven by which anyone can be saved, telling us that we, we begin with a position of lostness. 1 John 5, 12 says this very plainly. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son does not have life. John 3, 36, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. So the opposite of eternal life, of joy forevermore in the presence of God, is hell. And it's described variously as a place of utter darkness, a lake of fire, a place of weeping and gnashing, the clenching of teeth, eternal separation from the presence of God. And this has been the witness of the church throughout the centuries. And so I think we have to take that seriously. Third, the support of reason. Uh, I mentioned last Sunday um, that I find Reformed theology the, the most satisfying explanation, at least for me, in thinking about God um, as hard as some of the, this is because the emphasis of Reformed theology is always on the sovereignty of God. It begins and ends with God. Our salvation and all of history rests on God's freedom to choose to love in Jesus Christ. Now, no, no theological system is perfect. No theological idea can give us a complete picture of God. Um, and certainly you can be a Christian, a good Christian, while holding other views, uh, Catholicism or Arminianism, certainly. Um, personally, I don't find them as convincing for myself. Um, you know, that's, that's why I'm Presbyterian. Um, and so God could have devised a plan of redemption, of glorification that did not involve hell. But as I said, the testimony of Scripture and the history of the church tell me that it's there and that there must be a reason for that. And I think for me, as I, as I think about this in terms of reason, um, I think the doctrine of hell, for, at least for me, best helps for me to understand both the justice of God and the preservation of human freedom. I think for most of us, we are not suffering persecution for our faith. And, and we don't know what that looks like in a kind of a real experiential way. You know, may, maybe, you know, in high school, some people made fun of you because you went to church or something like that. But not the kind of persecution that Paul is writing to the church in Thessalonica or to the Romans. Um, and so we, we don't emphasize or we don't look forward to God's ultimate plans of justice in the way that those who are suffering do. But for a church like this in Thessalonica, the idea that God's justice will prevail, that their suffering is not meaningless, that God is there with them, watching over them, I mean, that, that's a great comfort to know that. 
that those who are persecuting them will ultimately receive their justice. So my impression is that those who want to kind of dismiss hell or to, to kind of get rid of it, they don't, they don't take the justice of God seriously enough, nor the seriousness of sin, right? And we forget not just the seriousness of sin, but the seriousness of the one whom we sin against. Because that makes all the difference. We might tell a little lie to someone and then we say sorry and apologize to that person and forget about it. And we forget to realize the depth of that sin that we have just committed against God. It's not just the sin that we commit to one another that's the problem. It's that when we sin against one another, it is first and primarily a sin against God. We don't know what it's like. or that, that, That's an aspect of sin and confession that we don't really grapple with. King David, for example, when he committed his sins, multiple sins of adultery, of murder, though he committed that sin against a particular family, against particular people, he cried out to God, against you, O God, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. He's not ignoring the fact that he sinned against Uriah and against Bathsheba, but he realizes that his sin is a sin against God and that the sin against God is greater because of who God is. Think about it this way. This is, a, this, might, this is not the best illustration, but think of it this way. Suppose you see a little boy in the yard pick up a little beetle or something, a bug, and like rip its legs off and torture a little bug and you see this boy doing that, what do you think? That's bad, right? The boy is sinning against that bug. You might go, oh, terrible parents or terrible kid. But that's about it, right? If it were your child, maybe you tell him to stop and, and so on. Now, suppose you see the same kid torturing a frog, ripping its legs off. How do you feel? A little worse, right? Suppose you see that boy now torturing and tearing the legs off a puppy. Now now you're getting really angry. Now suppose that boy starts, I know, torturing and tearing the legs off a baby. Right? Now now you're just screaming, right? You're going to intervene. Why? The sin is the same. Pulling legs, torture. Why are we so outraged more when it's done against the child than against a cricket? Because we value the life of the child far more than, right? So so if we kind of extrapolate that, think about the sin that we are committing against God. I mean, God's in a whole different, he's, he's infinitely above us. He's in a whole different category. And so it's not the fact that the sin is is so bad because, well, what's a little lie? It's that that sin is against an infinitely higher being. And and so it's bigger. Perhaps infinitely bigger. 
I think that's why the price of sin is so high. And when you think about the price that Christ paid on the cross, I mean, that is a very, very high price. Because the offense is that high. Because it's committed against the creator. And it's also why for those who are unrepentant, that penalty remains. Secondly, I think that hell helps for us to preserve our freedom. It makes our choices, the things that we do in this life, real and consequential. Because if it didn't matter what we did, the choices that we make, whether we have faith or not, whether we choose to love or to hate, life ultimately becomes just a a meaningless game. It, It doesn't matter. It would make human suffering unnecessarily cruel and inexplicable. But God has given us real choices. Love, in fact, I would argue, and has been argued, love must be given freely, otherwise it is not love. You have to love freely, voluntarily. And so God is going to honor our choices, even if that choice is to reject him forever. J.I. Packer writes, Scripture sees hell as self-chosen. Hell appears as God's gesture of respect for human choice. All receive what they actually chose, either to be with God forever, worshiping him, or without God forever, worshiping themselves. Or more simply, as C.S. Lewis put it, there are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done, and those to whom God says, thy will be done. All that are in hell, choose it. Without that self-choice, there could be no hell. Now, I, I, don't, I don't want to suggest uh, even remotely that um, this is an airtight argument or that this explains everything nice and simply, intellectually, or anything like that. Um, because, you know, I, I understand that God's justice uh, demands payment for sin. Um, I think we can all agree that, you know, I know this is a, someone like Hitler. I, have, I kind of feel bad for him in that regard. He's always just used as this example. Like, we can all agree, like, Hitler deserves to go to hell and, and should be there for all eternity. Like, we, right? Uh, um, but if, we're, if, we, if we make the argument that those who are, who are without Christ are lost in hell for all eternity, it, not only do we have to assign Hitler to hell for all eternity, we have to assign the six million Jews he murdered to hell with him. That, that's hard to accept. You know, my, my moral intuition just tells me that, that that can't be right somehow. That, that There's something about that that just doesn't sit with me. Now, that, that's an extreme and abstract example, obviously. But suppose you have a neighbor that you just love hanging out with, right? You just have a neighbor who's not a believer. You share the gospel with her. You bring her to church. She enjoys it, but doesn't really get the gospel. By all accounts, you know, she's nice, she's kind, generous, funny. But without Christ, she is lost and faces eternal separation from God. How do you reconcile that in your mind and in your heart? What would you do? Would you try harder because you know that's the eternity she faces? I mean, wouldn't that torment you 24-7 to know that this person is facing eternal separation 
How do, you, how do you sleep with that knowledge? Or would you harden your heart against this person to lessen your own torment? Well, they're going to hell, so I'm going to distance myself. I don't want to get too attached. Like, both options are unlivable. Like, I don't know how you live that way. What about a family member you love? You know, this is a question I get, uh, I get asked sometimes. Can you imagine truly being happy and joyful for all eternity, knowing that someone you love, someone in your family who's not a believer, is going to be in hell for all eternity? It's hard to imagine that in our present state. So this is hard. This is hard. I know that God is just. I know God is just. And I know God is good. But I struggle with how eternal punishment adds to God's glory. I I do struggle with that. But I also know that my reasoning, my own will, it's fallen. And so that I I have to come to a position of where I'm going to trust that when I am fully redeemed in my resurrected body, when my mind and my reasoning has been fully sanctified, that God will reveal this more fully to me and make sense of this for me. And that's where I am. But until that day, hell is not where I want to begin nor end our conversation about faith. I want to make sure that I don't overstate hell because the Bible doesn't. And there's not a whole lot in the scriptures about it. And what is there is largely in the form of parables and visions. And so we we want to tread carefully. Even in our earliest creeds, the Nicene Creed and the Apostles' Creed, there is no word about the eternal destiny of those who are not in Christ. Instead, the focus is on the triune God, maker of heaven and earth, whose son gave his life for us so that we might have life. And God is the ultimate judge. It's not up to us. We don't get to say this person's going to hell or that, anything like that. We can trust God to be good. And as we learned last week, God's judgment rests in the work of Christ on the cross so that we who are in Christ need not fear anything, not even death, for nothing shall separate us from the love of God in Jesus Christ. So instead of condemning others, we begin with Jesus, who wept when he considered the suffering of his enemies, who called Judas his friend as he was betraying him to death, and who on the cross forgave those who cursed him. Jesus, who loved me and who died for me, that is my foundation. That is the beginning, and that is the end. So in light of all of this, Paul says, verses 11 and 12, let's pray. To this end, we always pray for you, that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power, so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord, we are thankful this day that in you there is no fear, that you who gave us your only son
you will not withhold any good thing from us. That nothing shall separate those who are in you from your love. And so we rest in that. We rest in that. To those who are suffering for their faith, we pray on their behalf, God, that your justice be done. And we confess our sins, the part that we play in bringing oppression to others. And we ask God, as Paul prayed, would you help us to live in such a way to be worthy of your calling? Would you help us to fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by your power? So that in all that we do, your name, the name of our Lord Jesus Christ might be glorified according to the grace that you have made possible for us. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.